Welcome again uh, to Christ Central. My name is Daniel, and I'm one of the pastors, and I'm so glad you're with us this morning. Uh, We are in a sermon series uh, called Resurrection Stories during this Eastertide season. Uh, If you don't know, Eastertide is a 50-day season that begins Easter Sunday and goes through Pentecost Sunday, uh, where we celebrate that Easter is not simply a one-day event, though it was a historical event, But rather, it's an event that changed the tide in the course of history and that we are forever now those who live in light of and in power of the resurrection of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at a post-resurrection story in the gospel of Matthew. And I have to be up front with you from the jump that I'm a little bit anxious preaching this passage this morning. We're going to be looking uh, at a famously known passage for many, uh, a passage known as the Great Commission. And here's why I'm a little bit anxious. God has used this passage in, a profound, in profound ways in my life, particularly as a college student. I cannot tell you how many times as a college student I heard this passage taught and preached. It's too many to count. But through it, God aroused my heart and called me into global ministry where I spent many summers and years in China. Through it, God has brought me to a greater passion for people and people groups around the world who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through it, God ultimately called me into pastoral ministry. That's why I stand here today preaching as one of the pastors of this church. And at the same time, I feel some trepidation because I've heard this passage taught in many ways that have been harmful, creating guilt and shame on a person if they did not consider serving as a, as a missionary around the world personally experienced and know many who've received this teaching uh, around this passage to feel either like they were the elites of the church if they went on global mission or they were made to feel like they were the non-elites if they did not heed the call to go. I've experienced and seen ministries and churches take this passage and make it anthropocentric rather than Christocentric, meaning human-centered, right? All that we, you, I must do as though we are the triumphant ones who hold all the power to accomplish this great commission. There is clear and voluminous support of how missionaries have had little regard for national and ethnic culture in missions, therefore colonizing and destroying cultures. And so from the jump, I want to say that Christians have to admit past complicities with these realities and be aware of our own tendencies. But, and this is a a very large but, there has been and there is good mission. And the gospel climax in Matthew's gospel, it is a masterpiece that fuels and calls us into mission. German theologian Adolf Harnack famously remarked that one cannot say anything greater or more in 40 words than what is written in Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And so I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand and we're going to give attention to this great commission. This is God's word to us this morning. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that your word is active, it's living. 
We pray that it would cut through our hearts and our thinking so that you might bear fruit that lasts in our lives, that we would hear from you, Jesus, and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you. We pray that you would speak to us now, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, in the 1940s, the United States decided to build a new ship liner named the SS United States. Uh, it would be an $80 million project. It would be the largest ship liner ever created and also the fastest in the world. The U.S. government invested $50 million into this new ship as they planned to use it as a troop carrier, carrying 10,000 troops into battle with great speed when necessary. In 1952, the SS United States finally set sail, and it set sail as the fastest transatlantic travel liner breaking records that stand to this day. But it was never used as a troop carrier. It made history as a luxury liner that catered to wealthy patrons. And the SS United States final voyage was in 1969, and since 1996, it's been docked on the Delaware River in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, still a popular tourist attraction to this day. It's had different owners, and no one's really known what to do with the SS United States. The church, particularly in the West, has been in danger for a long time of becoming a luxury liner rather than what the resurrected Jesus mandated the church to be, a carrier of God's presence to the whole world. That's the mission of the church, Christians living all of life for all the world so that the rule and reign of God fills the earth like waters cover the seas. This has been God's design from the beginning. In Genesis, Eden was to extend to the ends of the earth, and sin disrupted this. But then God made a promise to Abraham, that all the nations would be brought into the presence of God. And we've been given the final vision and revelation, the end of all things, when God's dwelling comes down to earth and God's presence fills the new heavens and the new earth. And what we read in Scripture and what Christians believe all history testifies to is that the resurrected Jesus is bending all things back to himself so that God can dwell with his people face to face in a renewed world. And until this is completed, the risen Jesus has issued a mandate to the church to participate in God's mission by following the Great Commission. The Great Commission stands at the center of the church, and a church that forgets this or marginalizes it is in great danger of becoming or has already become a luxury liner rather than a carrier of presence. It's easy and very tempting. I know this as a pastor of a church. It's easy and tempting to allow the church to become about flashy programs, frenetic busyness, and sensational results as though the church's call is to cater to the consumer. But the resurrected Jesus is calling us away from mission drift, from being content as a luxury liner, and he's calling the church back to its original design and purpose to participate in God's mission as carriers of presence, of God's presence into all the world. And so we're going to look at this mission together this morning in three simple ways. Who is called? What is the call? And how do we go about the call? Let's look first at who is called. We start in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. And we can stop right there. 
Because if you read any of the four Gospels or if you know the story of Jesus at all, you know that number 11 in reference to Jesus' disciples should sound off. It's not whole. It's not perfect like the number 12. And so our passage begins with a limp, the 11 disciples. Unlike the book of Acts where the 11 disciples is repaired to the original number of 12 disciples, Matthew, the gospel writer, sees Jesus commanding a defective 11, the 12 minus Judas, the betrayer. So who does Jesus commission and call? The 11, the limping, the imperfect, the fallible. It is the imperfect church that Jesus calls to do his perfect work. And we see Matthew doubling down on this in verse 17. It says, when they saw Jesus, some of the disciples worshiped and some doubted. Right? Disciples of Jesus live lives between worship and doubt. If you've been a Christian for just a little bit of time, you know this. You've experienced this bipolarity of worship and doubt. One moment you have this strong and sure faith, and then in another moment it feels like you're holding on by a thread. These 11 disciples come to Jesus. Some worshiped and some doubted. But catch this. They still come to Jesus. And that's key. They are a mixed bag of worship and doubt, but they still come to Jesus. Why did you first come to Jesus? Maybe you're here this morning and you're coming to Jesus as new. You're you're new to the church. You're checking out Christianity. right? You didn't grow up around it. Why are you coming to Jesus? For those of you who are Christians and, and you, you're here this morning, why did you come this morning? Everybody comes for differing reasons. Some come because of intellectual questions. Some come for community. Some come for aesthetics. Some come for ethics. Some come to feel better about themselves. Some come because parents made you. Some come out of guilt and shame. And I'm not saying all these things are necessarily bad reasons to come. There's some legitimacy here, but we can be a mixed bag, our motivations all over the place. And what matters is that we come to Jesus. It's the kindness and the goodness of Jesus to welcome us in our worship and doubt, the sure and those who are wavering. For Jesus does not call the unstoppable spiritual elites to be part of his mission. Instead, he calls those of little faith, those who doubt, those who struggle, the weak and the wounded. He calls you. And he calls me. That's who of the call. Let's look at what is the call. We see this starting in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It starts with go. An even more dynamic translation is get going, move out. There is a sentness for all disciples of Jesus. This has always been the case for God's people. Genesis 12, God tells Abram, go, move out from your country, and I will make you a great nation. You'll be a blessing to the nations. Moses moves out from Egypt to deliver God's people. King David moves out in battle, and the church moves out. Every Sunday, the last word in worship is a benediction, a blessing from God as he sends us out into the world until we come back again the following Sunday. The church is as gathered people in worship on Sunday, and it's sent people throughout the week. Every day of our life, God sends us out into our jobs, 
into our schools, into our neighborhoods, apartment complexes, dorms. We move out into our city as we shop and dine and volunteer. We move out as we play in our gyms and our sports teams and art venues. Every day is a new day where God sends us out to people we expect to encounter and people we don't expect to encounter, into situations we anticipate and, and also into situations we're not anticipating. Every day is an adventure of moving out and living into what God has in store. And a church that has lost its sentness is a church that has become or is becoming a luxury liner for consumers rather than a carrier of God's presence into the world. And look at the comprehensive scope of this call. Go to all the nations, the whole world. Baptize into the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, into all of God, teaching to observe all I have commanded you. This is a great commission. And as we go, what are we called to do? We're called to make disciples. Make disciples. Now, this isn't a usual missionary term like preach, convert, win. The Greek word here, make disciples, is a slower verb, almost like educate, bring to school, mentor. Making disciples implies taking a person through a slow and personal process of learning. And this should really course correct the church when we drift from God's design. So the call of the church is not simply to count the numbers, noses and nickels. The call of the church is to make disciples. And this isn't done by flashy programs, but the slow work of someone being shaped and molded over time. And so we have to ask ourselves, Christ Central, are we making disciples or are we just gaining numbers and noses? Jesus calls us into mission to do the slow and spectacular work of walking beside people as they learn to hear and obey and trust God. You know, it's really hard to discern the effectiveness of making disciples in a moment, right? We'll often ask, are we, how are we doing, Christ Central, as a staff and leaders we're talking through this? It's hard to discern in a moment. It's easier to discern 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now. And we can look back and go, did we make disciples? Did children grow in the word of the Lord? Are our youth walking with Jesus after college? Are people still faithfully growing in grace and being used as God's instruments in the city? Are we making disciples? Well, how do we make disciples? Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We baptize. Uh, baptism, if you've been here, for one, is not just a, a cute service here at Christ Central. Not a cute service that we do for the you know, children of believers or for adults who profess faith who've never been baptized. Baptism is an identity statement that this person now belongs to God. And they will be taught God's ways and to walk in God's ways and to rest in God's love. Baptism is a claim of ownership by God. It's a pledge of allegiance. God to you, you to God. It's an identity statement. So this is a big task for the church in two ways. First, the church is prayerfully seeing people who, who've never been under the lordship of Jesus and ownership of God brought under the lordship and ownership by faith in Jesus, which means we are being sent out. We are moving out to love non-Christians in such a way that they become attracted to Jesus and to his lordship. Let me say, say this again. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I have to be upfront with you. 
in this. We're so thankful that you're here and you're trusting us to be here as you journey. But my, up front, my greatest desire for you is that you become a Christian, is that you're attracted to Jesus and you want to follow him with your whole life. But we never want to be a church that makes anyone who, who's in process, anyone who's a non-Christian, feel like a project. The call of the Christian is to love others with genuine love, with Christ-like love. And then we trust that it is God who is at work, drawing people to himself. And so for those of you who are Christians, I have to ask you this. Do you have non-Christian friends? When you look at your calendar and how you spend your time in a month, do you spend time with people who aren't in the church? We are sent out to love our neighbor and to love our city. We have to spend time with those who are not a part of the church. The second way this call to baptize is a big, big task for the church is that the church is to remind Christians, one another, over and over what our true identity is. The Heidelberg Catechism says we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong in body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we remind each other that we do not belong to this political party or that political party. We belong to God's kingdom. We remind one another that what defines a Christian is not race or class or a social cause, but rather that we are followers and disciples of Jesus. Dale Bruner wrote in his commentary on Matthew, baptized believers come under new management. We are not our own. Our citizenship and our allegiance is to King Jesus and to his kingdom. We're not only baptized, but we teach, right? Teach them. Teaching is hands-on. Teaching is face-to-face. We have many teachers in our congregation. Uh, my oldest son's about to finish a unit study uh, on insects, and he's got an incredible second-grade teacher. Listen to how she's been teaching them about insects. They're reading about insects. They're observing in- insects in class. He came home with a clay insect that he had crafted by himself. He drew the anatomy of an insect on, on a paper plate and brought it home. The teacher has him and his class studying the same subject by circling the same subject in different ways. Good teaching is slow and circling the same thing over time with patience as you bring a learner along gently, which means the call of the church is to speak the truths of God sing the truths of God, pray the truths of God, enjoy the sacraments that proclaim the truths of God, different ways of circling the same thing, and we do this with others. We walk alongside others as we learn and as they learn, and we teach. We teach them to observe all because a disciple is not someone who has just a lot of head knowledge. It's someone who observes, who keeps the teaching. Their life is one of obedience to what they learn. And so we have to ask Christ Center, are we making disciples? And the answer to that question is predicated on how you are doing in making disciples. Because it's you and you and you and you and me, not just the paid staff of this church, who are all sent out to make disciples. Do you have people that you're spending time with and living life with who hear you talk about Jesus and are learning about Jesus as you grow in new ways, and and therefore they start growing in new ways following him. I I used to think this had to be like some grand master plan, right, of, of discipleship, but it really doesn't have to be grand. 
If this feels scary to you, start small, one to two people that you're intentionally kind of spending time with, right? And you don't have to do this alone. You can invite these people into a city group or into a Bible study with you, or you could do it one-to-one. But as we do it, we have to remember God is the one who's at work. And this is a slow process. Jesus spent three years with 12 disciples. Lastly, how do we go about this call? This is what I hope really lands with us this morning. The how we go about the call is where mission drift happens most often. Did you notice that the commands of the mission in verse 19 are sandwiched between the commander of the mission in verse 18 and verse 20? Because the Great Commission is all about the resurrected Jesus, his authority in verse 18, and his presence in verse 20. And if you were to take away just one thing from my sermon this morning, here's the one thing I would, I would want you to take away. Life with God must fuel life for God. Life with God must fuel life for God. How do we go about this mission? We go surrendered to his authority, verse 18, filled with and experiencing his presence in verse 20. And then we invite others to surrender to his authority and to experience his presence. It takes a disciple to make a disciple. So the first thing we do uh, learn about how we go about it is that we go surrendered to his authority. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The resurrected Jesus has all authority, not some authority, but all authority. In heaven, all spiritual, metaphysical, philosophical, and religious power is his. He has all authority on earth. All social, physical, political, and economic power are his. Jesus reigns over everything. He rules over America, Scotland, Russia, China, Sudan, Morocco, Egypt, all people, all places, all things. He has the whole world in his hands. And we are called to surrender to his authority because he is in charge. We are not. A few years ago, I started watching the CW TV show that would later come out on Netflix called All American. Uh, If you've seen this, uh, season one starts out with this top-notch football player, high school football player uh, who recruited to Beverly Hills High in L.A. uh, And this all-star player is named Spencer, and and he he comes thinking he's going to do his own thing at Beverly Hills High. He's going to run his own routes, call his own plays. And first practice, the coach calls a timeout. And he brings everybody together, and he says, Spencer, go play safety. And Spencer says, why? And the coach says, give it a try. And Spencer says, I, I, I don't play defense. The coach says, you'll play what I tell you to play. And Spencer replies, you can't change my position. I came here to score touchdowns. And, and the coach says, no, you came here to play football, and you came to play as a team. And you, you can either be on this side of the line or that side of the line he was pointing off the field. He said, Spencer, you choose what it will be. Coach had all the authority. Jesus has all the authority, and he tells the church how to play. And we can either crown Jesus as the Lord of all of our life, or we crucify him, which means we surrender entirely to him. He has authority over all things. He has authority over your family, over your job, over your dating, over your sexuality, over your future over your money, he's in charge, and we surrender to him. The second thing about how we go about this call is we go about it filled with and experiencing his presence. 
I mean, the bookends of Matthew's gospel is, is God's presence. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, God is Emmanuel, God with us. And then chapter 28, verse 20, I am with you to the end of the age. God with us. It's not just a promise for the future. It's an assurance in the present. God with us right now, right here. That there is no time or space where God is not with us. That's our assurance. The question is, do we have hearts attuned to his presence? Are our eyes opened in wonder to see him? Do we have ears to hear when he speaks? Life with God fuels life for God. Do not forsake your own experience of God's presence. Enjoy him. And you will find that mission is not something you have to do. It's something we have the privilege of doing, and it happens quite supernaturally and sometimes unconsciously as God moves in and through us. The way that we are carriers of God's presence into the world is because the spirit of the risen Christ lives within us. And as we move out into this world, we seek to bring everything under the authority, the lordship of Jesus, and as that happens, God's presence fills the earth. William Borden, in the late 1800s, was a, the heir of a family fortune, a dairy company that's worth billions in today's dollars. Uh, I've shared this illustration before, uh, but it's a, it's a good one. He, he would have been considered a multimillionaire for his day in the 1800s. He went to Yale for undergrad, Princeton for grad school, uh, after high school, he went on a trip across Europe, Asia, the Middle East, where he saw millions of people who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he got home and told his parents that he was going to give his life on the mission field. And he wrote in the back of his Bible, no reserves. He then would go to Yale and would study. And while he was there, he worked with the homeless. And he founded and personally funded the Yale Hope Mission, this ministry to addicts. And his father died and left William a significant family fortune. And William then wrote another phrase in his Bible, not just no reserves, but no retreats. And when he graduated, he felt called to preach the gospel to unreached people groups in China. And so he went to Egypt to study language. And while in Egypt, he caught spinal meningitis. And then he wrote another phrase in the back of his Bible, not just no reserves, no retreats, but finally no regrets. And he died one month later in Cairo, Egypt. He never made it to China. And many people would look and go, what a, what a waste. And William Borden left his family, his fortune, his future career, and he sacrificed and he followed Jesus and he died before he got to the mission field. But William Borden was a sent one who followed God's call in his life. It wasn't about the noses and the nickels in China. It wasn't about him presenting this incredible PowerPoint presentation to display how great of a mission he was a part of. It was about following Jesus' mandate. And though he never made it to China, his life sparked a revival of God's presence at Yale. Hundreds surrendered to Jesus' lordship, and hundreds would be sent out all over the world as a result of William Borden's life. Brothers and sisters, God might, and I pray that he does, call some of you to places like China and to other countries around the world. I pray more and more people will feel the call to go to the nations at Christ Central than ever before. But here's what I can say with confidence. He is sending you today and tomorrow and the next day, right here, right now, into your jobs, into your neighborhoods, 
to people who are lonely and hurting, to care for the poor and the broken, and to love those who God knows you need to bring into his path. We are not a luxury liner. We are carriers of God's presence. And our confidence as we go is that we trust Jesus has all authority. It's his mission, and he will complete it. So we can relax and enjoy it. And as we go, we go with his presence, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Christ who is with us. And he is always with us to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that we could come to you as a mixed bag of worshipers and doubters. And we thank you that you just invite us to come. And as we come, I pray that we would meet you and that you would transform us as we surrender to you yet again, as we encounter your presence yet again, and that you would send us all out of this place as your ambassadors to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Thank you as we come to this table that we can come and that you meet us and you transform us and you send us out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.